The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Good morning. It's Tuesday, the 30th of January in London. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Europe podcast. I'm Stephen Carroll. Coming up today... The United States weighs how far to go in responding to Iran and its proxies after three soldiers were killed in Jordan. After a two-year standoff, a deal is struck to restore power sharing in Northern Ireland. Plus, the path to power. We have a special report looking at why Labour's UK election prospects hinge on winning over older, richer voters. Let's start with a roundup of our top stories. The United States is said to be looking for a response to the deadly attack on its troops in Jordan that's tough enough to deter Iran and its proxies without sparking a direct war. That's according to officials and experts who've been speaking to Bloomberg. President Joe Biden is facing mounting political pressure to respond forcefully to the drone assault, which killed three US soldiers and wounded dozens of others. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the US wants to prevent the Middle East conflict from spreading, but will respond strongly to the attack. To anyone who would try to use the crisis in the Middle East, the conflict in the Middle East, uh, to sow further instability and to use it as an uh, excuse to attack our personnel, we will respond. We will respond strongly. We will respond at a time and place of our choosing. Anthony Blinken's comments come after a source familiar with the Biden administration's position told Bloomberg the US response would be stronger than its most recent retaliations against Iranian proxies. The view underlines the risks of further escalation in a conflict that's already spread from Gaza across the Middle East. Israeli intelligence has claimed that up to 10% of the UN Relief Agency's 12,000 workers in Gaza were members of the militant groups Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. The assessment seen by Bloomberg also alleges that six employees with the UN Relief and Works Agency infiltrated Israeli territory during the deadly October 7th attack. The report comes after the United Nations fired several UNRWA staffers last week in response to the initial claim from Israel. The US... UK and others have suspended funding for the agency, while the UN says there will be an urgent and comprehensive independent review. The sell-off on Chinese stock markets has resumed, giving a clear signal to policymakers that more steps will be needed to revive investor confidence. The liquidation of the Evergrande Group, once the country's top developer, has intensified concerns about the property sector. Invesco's investment director, William Yuan, says sellers are overlooking the more positive outlook. Over the last two months, there has been a noticeable pickup in terms of fiscal support, monetary support. And that, I think, with such a large economy as, as China, it takes time to filter down to all parts of the economy. So I do expect that after the, the lunar period, probably the numbers will look a lot more better. Despite Yuan's optimism, the 10-year government bond yield in China slid to the lowest point in 22 years as investors fled to haven assets. The move suggests that some traders are expecting government stimulus on the horizon. 
Northern Ireland's Democratic Unionist Party has agreed to end its boycott of the region's power-sharing assembly, ending two years of political stalemate. DUP leader Geoffrey Donaldson says his party's return to Stormont is contingent on the UK government passing a new law reducing the impact of post-Brexit trade rules. He says recent talks, which included a promise of £3.3 billion of funding, led to significant progress. We recognise that significant further advances have been achieved through these negotiations. This package, I believe, safeguards Northern Ireland's place in the Union and will restore our place within the UK internal market. Donaldson's comments mark the end of the DUP blockade, which dates back to February 2022, when the party withdrew from the Stormont Assembly, arguing that Boris Johnson's Brexit deal undermined Northern Ireland's place in the UK. Some members of the party are still likely to oppose the move. France's Prime Minister is promising fresh support for the country's farmers as protesters continue to block motorways around Paris. Bloomberg's Tiwa Adebayo has the details. Tractors are blocking key routes into the French capital as farming unions continue to call for more support in the face of higher production costs and stringent regulations. The protests began more than a week ago. Concessions from the government, including reversing a tax hike on farming fuel, haven't helped to ease farmers' concerns. France's Prime Minister, Gabrielle Attal, is set to announce more plans for the sector in a speech to Parliament later. While the country's interior minister says some 15,000 police officers are being deployed to stop tractors entering Paris and other major cities. In London, Tiwa Adebayo, Bloomberg Radio. Here in the UK, shop price inflation is at its lowest rate in more than a year as retailers compete for customers. The British Retail Consortium's index sees prices 2.9% higher year on year. Bloomberg's James Wilcock has the details. The crucial Christmas shopping period was weaker than many on the high street had hoped for. Now, Britain's retail sector is scrambling for customers by offering heavy discounts. It's positive news for inflation-watching economists, but not without a cost. Fashion brand Superdry is one of those hit hard by the cost-of-living crisis and weak sales. Its share price has fallen 89% in the last year. In London, James Wilcock, Bloomberg Radio. And Elon Musk says the first human patient has received his Neuralink brain implant. The news comes after the Tesla founder previously predicted surgery in a human head using his device by the end of 2019. Bloomberg's Ed Baxter has the story. Musk says this is a significant step forward for the company. He says it aims to one day let humans control computers with their minds. He's posted that the patient is recovering well and that the initial results of the procedure are promising. The first goal for Neuralink is to help people with traumatic injuries to operate computers with only their thoughts and to help patients with conditions from cervical spinal cord injury to ALS. It does have FDA clearance for the trials. Ed Baxter, Bloomberg Radio. Well, in a moment, we'll get more on the dilemma facing the US president on responding to that attack on soldiers in Jordan. Plus, we're going to bring you more details of Bloomberg's latest analysis of the electoral map here in the UK with an eye on the next general election. But just worth reflecting for a moment on that news out of Elon Musk's Neuralink uh, that they have uh, received that first implant, the first human receiving the implant and recovering well I mean, when the, the promises first came out that uh, from Elon Musk that he planned on implanting a human with this device, I think there was a fair amount of scepticism. Um, but certainly it is a, a very interesting development scientifically that that uh, implant has gone ahead. Worth saying that a commercial 
brain implant isn't imminent. Um, there is one of the advisors actually to Neuralink who says there's a danger of overhyping this progress. Uh, speaking before this latest announcement from the company, he said, this is Jamie Henderson, um, he says that he was excited about technology and approved device is still years away, but an interesting scientific development to note this morning as well. Well, let's get more now on our top story. US President Joe Biden weighing his response to the attack that killed three soldiers in Jordan. He's under political pressure, as we've been reporting, to respond forcefully. But officials are looking for a way to avoid sparking direct warfare with Iran. Our head of Middle East and North Africa covers Stuart Livingston Wallace joins us now for more. Stuart, good morning to you. What do we know about the options being considered now by the Biden administration? Yeah, good morning. Uh, the short answer is none of them are particularly good, uh, at least from the US perspective. So it's clear from a domestic politics point of view, he has to do something. You know, he has to respond. And I think also in terms of the US position on the world stage, it's important there is some sort of response. You can't ignore it. On the other hand, he goes into strong and he risks escalating uh, what is already a you know a pretty dangerous situation. And I suppose maybe more cynically, uh, Pumps up the oil price in an election year, which is never a great thing to do if you're running for office again. Um, but in terms of sort of the practicalities of what he could do, uh, I think the feeling is the most likely target is probably Iranian assets outside of Iran. In other words, avoid any visible attack on uh, Iranian territory. Now, there are plenty of uniformed Iranian military advisors, uh, in inverted commas, are dotted around the region with the proxies. So you could potentially go after those. Then there's sort of the, the lower level stuff, uh, or less visible, I should say, which is sort of cyber warfare, um, collecting intelligence and then starting to fund uh, anti-Iranian proxies of its own. In other words, fight the proxies with proxies. Um, but he'll have to do something fairly quickly, I think. How how difficult a balancing act is this for the president? You alluded to some of the concerns there, but he's under different forms of pressure from political constituencies in the US, but also the response being demanded in the region. Yeah, exactly. And I think look, it, it's been a very difficult few months because, as as you know, the US has spent several years trying to get out of the Middle East or at least wind down many of its operations. I mean, it still has something like 47,000 troops stationed around the region. So it's a, it's an awful an awfully big drain on its resources and it can see what's happening in the Pacific, you know, a buildup of tensions there. It's sort of got already got a hot war going on in Ukraine. The US has a really quite impressive military capability, but it can't necessarily fight in three theatres simultaneously. So I think, you know, at least in the medium term, uh, we should expect the, U- the US move to withdraw from the Middle East or at least wind down in the Middle East to continue. That that feels inevitable. Uh, but in the short term, I think you're probably going to see more resources being put into the region, you know, more, certainly more naval assets. Uh, and, I th- and I would suspect the capabilities that come with that, which is broadly aircraft and missiles. Stuart, we're following another story from the region this morning too and this Israeli intelligence report saying that 10% of staff at the UN Relief and Works Agency in Gaza were members of the militant groups Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. What more can you tell us about that report? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be a while before we we get to the bottom of it. Um, The report itself, which I should stress, we weren't able to independently verify the claims in it. Uh, But yes, as you say, it sort of, uh, it suggests that a up to 10% uh, of the group were somehow implicated. Um, we know that the Secretary General of the UN uh, is, has asked and has ordered uh, an urgent review, but uh, as you know, that, that can take some time. Um, 
but I've been thinking about the short-term impact. It is pretty much the only aid operation uh, going on in Gaza. So if we're in a situation which has already happened where a lot of the major donors have withdrawn funding, uh, where we know there is already issues with getting aid across the border, um, you know, the things don't bode well for the humanitarian situation in Gaza. Okay, Stuart Livingston-Wallace, our head of Middle Eastern North Africa coverage. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Let's turn to a story from the UK political landscape next and the challenges facing the Labour Party if it wants to win power at the next election. Bloomberg's been analysing Britain's new electoral map after recent revisions of constituency boundaries to assess the key place that Labour places that Labour needs to win uh, to secure a majority in the next parliament. Bloomberg's Eamon Farhat has been analysing this data for us and he joins us now. Eamon, talk us through the analysis and the findings in this reporting. Because of these new boundaries, you know, because of shifts in populations every maybe 10 years, it's been about 15 years since the last one, they redraw the efficiency map. And now we know basically where the most winnable seats are for Labour. We know kind of what the state of play is. It looks like, not not too surprising, Scotland, the North, but actually all across the country, Labour needs to be able to win seats to try and get into power. That's what we found. This is a Railings and Thrasher analysis. And about a national swing of about 12.7% is needed for this, which would be a historic win. Obviously, the polls are way ahead of that. But still, this is quite a big challenge that's uh, that's ahead for the Labour Party. So what does it tell us then about how the election will be fought and what the prospects are for Labour? Yeah, so looking at these seats, what we did is we basically looked at the 125 most winnable seats for Labour. And that's actually the minimum that they need to get a majority of one in Parliament. And looking at those seats, it seems that Kistama has to win over, you know, much older, richer, whiter, you know, more homeowners than you know, the base that was won in 2019. And it kind of pushes him to maybe put forward policies or campaigning points that attract those people more. That being said, when I spoke to academics and pollsters, they said it's important that although he's delving into a, you know, out of his comfort zone into new areas, he also doesn't want to maybe alienate his core voters. Obviously, you know, the, the opinion polls really do put him way, way ahead. But that national big lead in the opinion polls doesn't always translate to every single little demographic that is the older, the you know, the white or the more rural voters that he needs to win and that this analysis shows he needs to win. This is a, a fascinating and detailed analysis and you can read the details on Bloomberg.com and of course on the terminal as well. Eamon, I'm wondering in this research, were there any particular findings that surprised you? Yeah, I think when I was doing this research, I basically kind of compared, for example, for, for older people, you know, what did it look like in 2019? How old was the average voter? What does it look like um, for their target seats in 2024? And it seemed like in every demographic, whether it's age, ethnicity, you know, how many homeowners, it always seemed that Keir Starmer now has to target voters who are more representative of the average British person. In the past, Labour does very well in more urban seats with the younger population, with graduates, for example. Now they really have to kind of win over the average Brit. That is in slightly more rural seats, still, you know, fairly urban, a little bit older, more homeowners, and definitely not, not you know, it's not really the average London seats that Keir Starmer has to win over. So that was quite interesting. That, you know, it really is quite a departure from the, the normal comfort zone for Labour. Eamon, of course, we're talking about this at a time when the Labour Party has an absolutely huge leads in the lead in the polls, over 20 points in, in many of the recent polls as well. Does this analysis, is this really going to cause pause for thought in Labour headquarters? I mean, I think it should. You know, when I spoke to lots of these pollsters and academics, they said that, of course, the lead is huge, um, but things can change. You know, there is also polling error. And they did say that, you know, if, if you take into consideration a polling error, 
this lead could be cut by maybe 10%, and then you're not looking at as much of a huge major labor landslide. You're looking at maybe, you know, a small later labor minority government, uh, sorry, a small labor majority, or maybe even a minority government in a, in a coalition. And they were saying that because of these kind of different demographics that they have to win over, things like immigration, if that becomes a major campaign point like the conservatives want it to, that can also swing lots of these seats. So at the moment, it does seem like labor has a pretty good hold on it. But if the economy gets a bit better, you know, if things change, maybe geopolitically, the polling can change quite quickly and then we will be in a very different situation. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, your morning brief on the stories making news from London to Wall Street and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed every morning on Apple, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning on London DAB Radio, the Bloomberg Business app and Bloomberg.com. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 11.30. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day, right here on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, let's face it, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. There's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.